Good morning. Um, this week I shared a letter with the elders and the deacons, and I wanted to share it with you all as well. It says, Dear North Oaks Baptist Church, we have been blessed to serve uh, in this church since 2016. We are thankful that God has given us the opportunity to know you and to serve you. As a church, you have shown a love for Christ in many ways, one of which has been the outreach of the Christmas Shoebox Ministry and supporting missionaries. We have been so blessed to see your generosity and love for the Lord in your giving, to see the gospel go out to all the nations. Our lives have the purpose of glorifying God by obeying his word, whatever the cost. I feel God is leading us away from North Oaks Baptist Church. God's leading and plan is to be obeyed. He has shown us clearly that now is the time that we must step away from our ministry at NOBC. Our last service with you all will be March 12, 2023. We pray that your next pastor will lead you to glorify God, edify one another, and evangelize the lost. Uh, we love you and are praying for you. Uh, please pray for us. We want to faithfully follow where God is leading, even as it seems to be walking into the unknown. Uh, thank you for being so patient with us. God has been uh, used you to grow our faith. Uh, we have learned here. Uh, we know that God will use in the future where he leads us. Uh, we love you and thank you again for the years of ministry with his passion and for his glory. Daniel Darling. Uh, Chris Cashin now is going to say a couple words. Pastor, thank you for your service to North Oaks Baptist Church over these past seven years. You stepped forward as the senior pastor of both the Hispanic and English ministries, just as COVID-19 was beginning, and you have guided the church well ever since those early days of the pandemic. And now God is calling you, Kara, Hannah, Bella, Liev, to step out in a different direction, and in a direction where you don't know the end. I admire, as I believe everyone here does, your courage to take such a step. While taking this step, it is scary, but I'm sure you're eagerly watching for God to open doors to serve him, and that's exciting. Please know that you and your family will be in our prayers. I've enjoyed working with you. And who knows how our paths might cross in the future. Who knows? Maybe you'll go to the mission field. And maybe North Oaks can be a part of your support. But you're not gone yet. I want to thank you for being available over these next couple of weeks to help North Oaks 
as we take our next step in seeking how God will move us in our church here. Pastor, we love you. Kara, we love you. Anna, we love you. Bella, we love you. And Liev, we love you. To God be the glory. Well, if you're visiting, you're like, this is really awkward, right? I mean, this is really strange. Oh, my word. Like, is this what they happen every Sunday in a Baptist church? No, it's kind of a unique situation. So let's get into the text. That's why we're really here. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, I have a plan to finish Ephesians. I do. Uh, You're like, oh, my word. You know, he's been going like verse by verse. How in the world is he going to finish this? all um, in the next three Sundays. Well, I have a plan. It's going to involve staying here until 6 o'clock each Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We'll have to kind of look at bigger text as we move through this. And uh, uh, right now we'll look at just verses 18 through 21. Uh, But then we'll look at uh, a section of uh, chapter 5, 22, all the way through uh, 6, 9. And then we'll kind of look at the armor of God and finish out the chapter. So we, I have a plan. Uh, nothing's worse than, than reading a book and getting to the last two chapters and yeah, you don't get the rest of the thing, right? So here, I've got a plan. Don't worry. We'll get us all the way to the end of chapter 6. Uh, now, the context in which we are in is that Paul has been a missionary sent to preach the gospel. And he, uh, on his second missionary journey, he was in Ephesus, And when you think about missions, you can think about different stages of missions. There's the stage of where the missionary goes, and it's just brand new ground, and and there's the preaching of the gospel. There's telling individuals how they can go from death unto life, how a person can uh, believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the only thing to save them, as the only thing to redeem them of of their sins, to uh, rescue them out of their sins. That person who hears the gospel puts their faith in Jesus Christ and they are saved. And of course, the person needs to disciple and they need to baptize, just like we saw earlier, baptism. Uh, and then a, a group that is saved and baptized that organize themselves together uh, can become a church and they follow the ordinances of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But that's not where missions stops. Missions doesn't stop just right there. There's the need for continued growth. In fact, uh, this letter to the Ephesians is part of that continued growth. Um, He is wanting to disciple them more. It it doesn't even stop there. Later on, we see that Paul is writing to uh, Timothy, and Timothy is there ministering in Ephesus, and he's preaching to them. And then later on, it doesn't just stop with Timothy preaching to them, but later on comes uh, John, the beloved disciple, the the one who rests his head on Jesus. Uh, He's ministering there. And and as if if that wasn't enough, um, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to John on the island of Patmos. And uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is directed to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Now, Seeing this, 
missions doesn't just stop once the church gets established. It continues so that individuals can know about God and work in their life to use the knowledge of God uh, to, 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 move, to, to live that out, to practice that. Applying what you know about God to your everyday life. Now, what we've seen so far in this ethic that, that Paul has presented is that based on what we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of God choosing and foreordaining individuals for salvation, it gets played out in certain ethic that the person is supposed to do. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we see that they're supposed to walk worthy. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7, they're supposed to walk in holiness. Chapter 5, verse 2, they're supposed to walk in Christ's love. Chapter uh, 5, verse 8, they're supposed to walk as children of light. And then the pericope that we are in, chapter 5, verse 15, we are to walk as wise, as individuals who are wise. Now, the individuals who practice this, that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are going to produce a peculiar fruit, a, a fruit that is not made up by man or that has a standard of man, but it's going to be a peculiar fruit that the Spirit will do in that person's life. These are evidences of a person that has a relationship with, with God. Now, these things don't make you saved. They, they don't contribute to your salvation. But a person that is saved will practice these things, will show itself evident in their life. And, and that's what we're going to look at today. A spirit-filled life will demonstrate uh, be demonstrated by praising Christ, thanking God, and submitting to your fellow believers. A spirit-filled life will be demonstrated by praising Christ, thanking God, and submitting to your fellow believers. Uh, sometimes people claim that they are having a spirit-filled moment, and it involves doing different things. Uh, but what Paul presents here is that a spirit-filled moment will demonstrate itself in this particular way. Now, uh, the first point that we're going to see is in verse 18. And that is, a spirit-filled life is an alien lifestyle. Is an alien lifestyle. And you're <laughs> looking at the text and you're wondering, where in the world is E.T. in this text? Well, that's not what I mean. Uh, he, he starts off with an illustration. Uh, something to give a concrete uh, idea of what is being presented here. He says, do not get drunk with wine. That uh, word for drunk is... Uh, to be intoxicated, it's a, if you're interested, it's a present uh, passive imperative. The present aspect has this idea that it's something that you are continuing to do. You're always in the present. You're not to be getting intoxicated. The passive is the, the, uh, the fact that you don't intoxicate yourself. It, it, it's the alcohol. It has an effect on you. And the imperative is the force by which you're supposed to be doing this, that you're not to be engaging in this type of lifestyle. And so he says, do not be intoxicated. Do not be drunk. And, and it tells us here, he uses something. Um, it says wine. Uh, now, the idea here is, is coming under the influence of something. Uh, the idea is not, well, <laughs> I, I drink beer, so I'm good. Um, I'm not drinking wine, so I'm, I'm okay. No, the idea is not that. It's like, 
well, I just smoke marijuana, so I'm okay here. No, no, no. The idea is bringing yourself under a certain influence that, that causes you to act in a certain way and have a certain behavior. And he says the reason why in verse 18, it says, for that is dissipation. Dissipation is a, a, a word that's used very rarely in the New Testament. Three times, including this one. The, the two other times that it appears is in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. It's giving the qualifications of an elder. And giving the qualifications of the elder, it's talking specifically about the children. And the children of, it, of an elder should not be accused of dissipation, which is to have no morals. It's to act like a prodigal child where they, are, uh, they have a certain freedom to go and just participate in all types of sin. And the other place that it's used is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, Peter is telling how the, belie- uh, how the unsaved people act and that believers are supposed to be acting differently and that uh, they should surprise the unsaved for their lack of dissipation. That, that's what... The world should see the believer and see a difference, a a radical difference in their life. Now, Paul presents this image of a person acting under the influence of a substance. They ingest this substance, and this substance starts having an effect in their life. When Karen and I, uh, we we got uh, married, and we went down to Venezuela. We were going to help on the mission field, and uh, my dad was uh, officiating a, a wedding, and the couple that was getting saved was, was uh, getting married was saved, uh, but the parents were not. The parents were not. So they they had the wedding at the church, and um, it was all very nice. And then the parents invited us to this uh, kind of a clubhouse thing, uh, right on, right along the side of the river, and they uh, wanted us to be at the reception. Uh, so we we went, and uh, it was just Kara and I, my parents, and. And we get there, and shortly after we get there, they, it starts having some music blaring. You know, it's like, got the bang, boom, boom, boom. And, and then shortly after that, um, like I said, the parents aren't saved. So they start bringing these buckets that have ice and, and, and alcohol in it, and they start putting it on the tables. And, of course, people start, uh, it's hot in Venezuela, so they got to drink something cool, right? So they start drinking. And the, during the whole wedding, the grandfather of the bride, he, he was a, a serious man, had a a little uh, mustache. It almost looked like kind of an Adolf uh, Hitler mustache. It was just kind of a short one right there. And he, the whole time, he was just very serious, very stoic, just the whole time. And then he, he gets to the reception, and, and he starts one after the other to drink. And, and, and the music is going, and, and, and first he starts kind of tapping his foot a little bit, then he starts moving his shoulders a little bit. By the end of the evening, He's out on the dance floor looking for different women to dance with, and they're kind of all getting away from him. He, he has this influence of this alcohol in him, and it's making him act and behave a certain way. The, the poor bride, she was like, you're, you're tired. Go, go sit down. He's like, I'm not tired. And he wanted to keep on going. He's under an influence, and he's acting a certain way. Now, Paul presents a contrast. Rather than being under the influence of, of whatever type of substance, uh, he, he gives a contrast, a sharp, sharp contrast. But be filled. Be filled. Again, it's a present, which has this idea of continually being filled. It's a passive, 
Not that you fill yourself, but you are filled. Uh, something somebody else does. And it's the imperative, it's a command that this is something you are supposed to be seeking after. To, to come under a certain control as, as when you fill up a cup and it's, it's totally possessed by whatever liquid is in that cup. That, that's the idea, to fill up so that there's no other space in that cup. What? What are we supposed to be filled with? With whatever you like. That's what Paul says. You do you, boo-boo. That's what he says, right? That, that's what he says in the text. No, he doesn't. He, he says, by the Spirit. The Spirit is supposed to control the person. That, that's what's supposed to be filling the whole person. You lose identity of self. And what gets shown through is Christ, the image of Christ in the person. You lose all of self. And what you see is the Spirit, and the Spirit exalts Christ. That's what he does. Now, as we think about this, a spirit-filled life is an alien lifestyle. It's something from outside of us that comes in to have an effect in our behavior. Uh, Honer writes in his uh, commentary on Ephesians, the lifestyle is in contrast to those who are drunk with wine. As previously mentioned, persons controlled by alcohol no longer control their actions as exhibited when asked to walk a straight line and are unable to do so. Likewise, those filled by the Spirit no longer control their actions, but rather relinquish their will to the Lord. Ironically, this sometimes results in unusual actions. What makes those five missionaries go and fly a plane to reach the Alka Indians? and die on that shore? What makes martyrs stand on the side of Christ even as the flames engulf them? What, what makes a person pursue holiness when those around are not? It's being controlled by the Spirit because it requires of them to relinquish their will to the Lord and they do unusual things. In fact, the world looks upon it and says, that is so strange. Why would you do that? Why, why in the world would you do that? That makes no sense at all. Paul gives uh, these unusual behaviors as he's given these imperatives of how to walk. To walk worthy, to walk holy, to walk in love, to walk as children of light, to walk as wise. Uh, he's been mentioning these and telling us what we are to do is the way it's totally different from what the world presents. Now, as we see this, Paul is going to develop now, based on three uh, participles, uh, things that we are to do. Now, a participle doesn't uh, carry the weight itself. It's dependent upon uh, an indicative verb or an imperative verb. But we're going to see, based on the indicative of uh, the imperative of to be filled with the Spirit, he's going to give these different uh, participle, verbal adjectives of how a person that is filled by the Spirit is supposed to act. What, what are they supposed to do? What's supposed to characterize them? The first we see in verse 19, a Spirit-filled uh, person 
life will praise Christ. A spirit-filled life praises Christ. Uh, and we see that in verse 19. Speaking, which is uh, this talking to one another. I think the King James says yourselves. And uh, in the King James, it has a, a preferred translation here. Because uh, to one another gives the idea that uh, I speak to one person and the person speaks back to me. But really, that word has the idea that you are speaking to yourself and speaking to others. That, that's the idea being communicated. It says, uh, speaking to one another or to yourselves in psalms and hymns. That word hymns, uh, don't, don't, put a, don't put a modern idea to this word hymns. The word there has an idea of a song with religious content. A song with religious content. It's not a, a song in a hymnal. And spiritual songs. Songs that teach doctrine. Songs that teach doctrinal truths. Now, uh, these are the things you're to speak to one another. And to yourself. To remind yourself of these things. And then it says, uh, singing and making a melody uh, with your hearts to the Lord. The singing, that specific word, is not just a singing like you would see on some TV show or some artist or something. It's a specific word that has the idea of singing to a deity, a song of praise, of adoration. So it's not just going around singing, but rather it's singing unto uh, a specific deity. And in this case, it's uh, to the Lord. You're to, to sing to the Lord. Now there is an interesting connection here that, that Paul makes. What the mouth is going to be speaking is what the heart is going to be contemplating on. The, the words of your mouth will only be what's in your heart. The, the, true, the, the tree only produces fruit according to whatever root it has. You, you cannot... You cannot imagine an apple tree producing pears because it doesn't have that root. And, and the words that will come out is only that which is in the heart. Now, we can try to, to trick people. We can. We can hope for anything that if we come in right at 11 and leave right at 12 and don't get entertained with anybody, say, oh, yes, it's humid outside, it's hot. Maybe no one will know what's in my heart. Hopefully, no one will know what's in my heart. But as that person starts to talk, it'll be evident what's in there. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, uh, thinking about that, I don't know if you remember the old cassette tapes. Um, Imagine putting an old cassette tape of all that you spoke all last week and you hit that rewind button. And it goes, finally gets to the end, Monday, and you push play. What were those words? What came out of your heart? What was the overflow of your heart that came out in words? Was it praise? Was it songs? 
and hymns and spiritual songs unto the Lord. Now, you can't do anything to change last week. You can't. That's why Paul had just previously said, uh, redeem the season in which you are in. Take advantage of it. But what will this week prove in your speech? What, what will be coming out of your mouth from what's in your heart? What are you dwelling on that comes out? A spirit-filled life praises Christ. A spirit-filled life thanks God. We see that in verse 20. It says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To God, even the Father. Now there are two words here that are uh, <laughs> extremely difficult. I mean, really difficult. In fact, if we could just cross them out, I think the verse would be so much better. Uh, the, the first word is always. Always giving thanks. That word for thanks has this idea of being under an obligation to be thankful, to be, you, you feel obliged to thank. He says always giving thanks. And then it says for all things. All things? I mean, look, doesn't it read better like this? Giving thanks for things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, doesn't that sound better? Doesn't that just fall off the, the tongue? And you're like, yeah, I like that. I can decide what I like and what I can give thanks for. It's like Paul, uh, it's like something has happened to him. It's like he's forgotten what he has just presented. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he talked about the prince of the power of the air who is encouraging the sons of disobedience. In chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about those who are dead, the unsaved, and they, they have the wrath of God against them. Nothing good is going to go around from dead people walking around, the unsaved. Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, 16, Paul said that the days, as in the daylight, are evil. In chapter 6, verse 10 through 17, Paul tells the Ephesians to put on the armor of God to protect themselves from demonic forces. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul is writing in prison, in prison for preaching the gospel. You might think about your own life now. Forget Paul. You might say, I can't, I can't thank the Lord. You don't know what has happened to me. You don't know the, the person I just buried. You, you don't know the situation that I'm going through. I, I can't thank God. What I have right now is darkness. And that's my only companion. In fact, if there was going to be a text that you would read, it would be Psalm 88. Uh, if you would, go to Psalm 88. It, it, it's kind of a lengthy chapter, but we'll read it. Uh, listen to the, uh, how he calls out to God. Uh, listen to his trouble. Psalm 88. Oh Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear 
to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest place, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me. You have afflicted me with all your ways. You have removed my acquaintance far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eyes have wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. You have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning my prayer comes before you, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. You have surrounded me like water all day long. You have have encompassed me altogether. You have removed a lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. That last line gives the idea is that the only thing I know is darkness. And I'm all alone. Three times he mentions that he's in darkness. And and maybe you're looking at verse uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, 5, verse 20, and you're saying, I I can't give thanks. I, I identify with the psalmist in Psalm 88. I don't identify with this giving thanks all the time. You have to realize what Paul has written in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. If you are in Christ, your darkness is only relative. It really is. See, because Christ died, forsaken by the Father, He took your punishment. He, He took your sin upon Him, and He was in utter darkness, figuratively speaking. He suffered so that you would not suffer. Those who are in Christ are never in the darkness alone. They always have Christ with them. That that is a huge, huge praise. It doesn't matter how dark the days get. You always, if you are in Christ, have Christ, the creator of all things. And you can praise God for that. It doesn't matter how dark the days will get. And believe me, they will always get darker. You say, uh, it can't get darker. Than it will. But Christ is there in that darkness. And you can praise the Lord that He is there with you. Now, 
looking at the last verse, verse 21, a spirit-filled life lives submissive to others. Uh, some translations want to put this verse with the next pericope, which uh, goes into the whole wives be subject to your own husbands and husbands are head of the wife, etc., etc., etc. Some some translations want to divide the pericopes in such a way that that goes with that. The problem is is that participles don't stand alone; they're dependent upon indicatives or imperatives, and the it, in in this case, an imperative is found in verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. So it is tied to the top part of that pericope. It's, it's the last verse of that pericope, of that section. And, and in it, it's saying to be submit yourselves. It's a present metal participle. The metal is a, a personal involvement. You submit yourselves. Bring yourselves under subordination. Obey. It's not a forced submission. It's rather a person comes and puts themselves in subordination to another person. Now, to whom? To whom is this supposed to happen? Well, it says, uh, be subject to one another. To one another. It, uh, it seems obvious, but I'll just mention it. Obviously, we're not supposed to be submissive if somebody's trying to say, do this sin. Obviously, it's not in issues of sin. But in the scope of what God allows and in the scope of what it is to walk wisely, we are to submit to one another. You want to talk about being un-American, un-Texan. I mean, nobody goes and gets that tattooed on their chest here, right? I'm submitting to everybody. No, no one does that. This is so countercultural that we read that and it's like, we got to go to the next verse. We don't want to listen to that. Submissive to one another? How, how does this make sense? We live submissive to one another because we're not the head. Christ is the head. And we are just body parts. Where? God determines where the body part's going to be. But at the end of the day, we're all body parts. We all are submissive to the head. And the day that one body part thinks, I am the head and I'm going to determine what to do, it's an act of rebellion against Christ, the sovereign. Why do we live submissive? Because we live under the headship of Christ. And any other type of lifestyle is sin. There's no, no pretty way of putting that. It's sin. Now, as we think about this, a spirit-filled life will be demonstrated by praising Christ, thanking God, and submitting to your fellow believers. Maybe all that sounds strange to you because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you have some information You've heard some stories. Maybe you saw a flannel graph at one time of a Bible story. But you really have never come to the point where you have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. In fact, if, if the person beside you asked you how you're going to get to heaven, you would say something along the lines of, I'm hoping I'm being good enough. 
or I'm, I'm trying to, to live a, a good, honest life. But that's not going to save you. If that was going to save you, then it was ridiculous for God to send his son to die for you. It, it makes no sense. Why put your son through all that pain? Because it's the only way of salvation, of believing what he did on the cross. His death in your place as a substitute to reconcile you with God. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you have, your life should demonstrate living spirit-filled. And how does it do that? Because your heart is dwelling on Christ, your mouth praises Christ. You're thanking God continually and you're submitting to your fellow believers. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray that if someone's here has not received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray in a moment at the time of invitation that maybe they'll ask somebody beside them or maybe they'll even come forward and want to get saved. Father, I, I pray for other of us who are saved. And maybe we have not been demonstrating a spirit-filled life. Our hearts are dwelling on other things and our mouths are speaking other things. We're not continually giving thanks to you, Father, and we're not being submissive. I pray, Father, that uh, we'll repent and turn to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.